This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet, especially this summer. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. This is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, Anna Jane and I are continuing our series called How Then Shall We Live, which is exploring the question of whether our personal choices matter in the fight for our climate. Our topic for this episode is flying, which is a deeply personal and difficult topic for me. Uh, My dad is a pilot. I wanted to be a pilot when I was a little girl, and traveling is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Um, But we have this utterly gorgeous conversation about flying and so much more with Dr. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist from NASA. We explore his journey to cut his carbon footprint, including totally cutting out flying. It's one of the most magical and enlightening conversations I've ever had, and I'm so excited to share it with you. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Hey there, Anna Jane. Marianne! It is summer, and I am loving life. Happy summer. So uh, my daughter just finished her last day of second grade. So summer Aww. has officially begun in my life. I will. I have to inform you that uh, after second grade, you are no longer a little kid. According to her, you are a big kid oh. in third grade. So well, congrats, we are, Hazel, on graduating from second grade and becoming a big kid. I know. All sorts of things. She's going to like start using the big knives in the kitchen and who knows what else. <laughs> trying to sneak the car out of the garage. I don't know. <laughs> it is an electric car. It's an electric car. So I, I won't even be able to hear her. It would be hard to- <laughs> I should have thought of that. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, summer has begun. Tell me what you have been up to lately. Oh, my gosh. So I have been crazy busy. I am working on this voting rights campaign in North Carolina, my beloved North Carolina, where I spent most of my life, really, from ages two to like twenty. 27, I think. Um, but yeah, cool. so, yeah, it's really cool. It's, it's interesting. Like it's a departure from climate um, because most of my work these days involves climate, obviously. But I really believe that voting rights kind of underpin climate and all of these other issues that I really care about. Um, and it's something I'm super passionate about. And of course, I'm really passionate about North Carolina. And there's this whole angle around this particular fight that has a lot to do with racial oppression and racial justice that I think is really important. So uh, it's been really cool. If a lot of people are disenfranchised from voting who would tend to be supportive of clean energy and action on cleaning up pollution and addressing climate change, if a lot of those people who often are 
people of color are disenfranchised, then it, it's uh, going to be even harder to get something done about climate change. So I hope folks see the connections between those issues. And if you don't, um, we're here to help. But that is so cool that you're that you're doing work on that. Thank you. It has been cool. It's also like, you know, I've been working on this kind of more like creative digital strategy around climate change the past couple of years, which I love, um, especially the creative pieces. But I miss kind of just like the old school grassroots organizing, like boots on the ground, like our mentor Lenny Combe used to say that that's like the key, you know, you have to have boots on the ground, you have to kind of do get your hands dirty a little bit. And this campaign is very um, kind of true to that ethic. You know, it's, it's a lot of like that old school community organizing. And it's just been amazing working with some incredible people in North Carolina and around the country who care about this. Um, I've been working with Democracy North Carolina and Color of Change, and there's just so many incredible organizations that if you are passionate, like like we are, about about voting rights in addition to climate change, you should totally look up the work that they're doing and, and see what's happening in North Carolina because it's really important. Well, I definitely uh, am giving you major major kudos for working on that because it is so important and and you know as we are seeing now the connections between voting and who wins those elections and what happens to our planet are on the front page every day uh with the latest example being well just on june the first we had the one-year anniversary of trump uh, announcing his intention to exit the paris agreement and so lots of media coverage of that and then on the same day, uh, which irony was not lost on me, uh, this memo leaked about a plan, a scheme uh, that he and his fellow small-time grifter Scott Pruitt have come up with um, to bail out coal plants and nuclear plants that can no longer compete uh, in the marketplace. The electricity they're making is just too expensive because we have so so much uh abundant renewable energy these days and a lot of competition in the electric grid. And so they have this terrible scheme to try to prop them up. Um, and in case listeners heard about that and are wondering about it and are scared, um, I am here to reassure you that, uh, for one, it has some, some fatal flaws. Um, they're using these obscure, they're proposing to use these very obscure wartime laws to declare that there's some sort of emergency in our electricity supply. That's why we need to force people to buy this more expensive power from these failing old coal plants. But the reality is there is no emergency. And even the largest grid operator in the United States said immediately after this proposal came out, "Um, hello, we have plenty of electricity. There's no emergency. And if a bunch more of coal plants retire, we will still have plenty of electricity. So it is based on some kind of flawed fundamentals that we hope will uh, bring it down either in the courts or in the court of public opinion. But even in the meantime, no matter what the the fate is of this terrible idea, um, clean energy is just barreling ahead. So um, check this out. We just got the latest numbers from the Energy Information Agency, which does, you know, reports on where our electricity is coming from. And as of March 2018, according to the U.S. Energy Information Agency, um, the coal consumption by the U.S. electric power sector reached the lowest level since 1982. So this is like, what were we doing in 1982? We were... What? That's like, that was before I was born. (laughs) Like, a good couple years before I was born. Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, it was? You just made me feel kind of old. <laughs> so the lowest levels in Anna Jane Joyner's lifetime. Um, and the overall fossil fuel consumption in the electric sector fell to its lowest level since 1994. And, um, and over the last 12 months, we got just 29.5% of our power from coal, which is a new all-time low since like the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yes. So that is progress that Trump cannot stop, even with this crazy idea, because again, decisions about where we get our electricity are still going to be made, even if he tries to prop these things up at the, the state and the regional level. Um, and the, the market fundamentals have just, it's, it's like a tide he can't, that he can't stop. But, um, I do want to mention we have a new, around all these great stories on clean energy progress, the Sierra Club has actually put together a really cool movie called Reinventing Power that is coming out this summer. You can host a local grassroots screening if you want to in your community. So you can go to reinventingpowerfilm.com and it's full of these clean energy stories. There's actually one from North Carolina, um, from Ooh. Michigan, from Montana, or from out west, I think Montana, from uh, California with electric buses. And it's all sorts of uh, surprising voices, no Sierra Club talking heads, but real people who are benefiting from the clean energy economy, telling their stories, super powerful um, and that's some good, some good, in addition to all the, the facts I just threw at you, it's some beautiful stories that I hope folks will, will check out as an antidote to some of these Trump hijinks. Oh, I can't wait to. I'm obsessed with stories, as we all know. <laughs> well, check it out, y'all. Reinventingpowerfilm.com if you want to host a screening and everything you need right there. Definitely. That sounds amazing. And thank you so much for this incredible work that you and Beyond Cole have been doing for ages you're, you're really keeping us going in a lot of ways and giving me a lot of hope. Um, but enough about work. I want to hear about life. How's your summer going? What are your plans? Well, we are, have some very fun vacations planned. We're going to go visit my sister in Tacoma, Washington. My sister who was on the podcast, Dr. Emily Piney. What's up, sister? And we're going to go to Yellowstone National Park, which is like... Hazel's now old enough to have like an iconic American summer vacation to Yellowstone. So, uh, so it's so exciting. And of course, we're going to do a lot of flying. And so I'm so excited to hear this interview that you did because, you know, I'll just be honest, I'm not going to stop flying. I'm not going to fly less. The planes are going. I'm going to be on them. I have to fly for work. And yet I also know that it's not good for our climate. And, uh, and so... The fact that you all kind of dug into that in your your interview, um, I'm so excited to listen. So tell me all about it. Oh my gosh, it was it was like a just amazing conversation. This um, guy, Dr. Peter Kalmus, who we're going to be ta- or who I'm you know speak with, he he was so humble and graceful, even though he's kind of advocating for this pretty provocative and sort of revolutionary thing, which is that we do fly less. In his case, he doesn't fly at all, although he's been very honest that like he might fly again. It's just that there's been nothing there thus far that has really made him feel like it was worth it. It was almost like a spiritual conversation. Like he has this like wisdom and humility and almost like just sense of awe of the world that really comes out. And and I think a lot of that he gleaned from from not only just not flying, but also other um, ways that he was able to cut his carbon footprint that really reconnected him to his community and to a slower, you know, kind of pace of life. Um, that was really, I don't know, kind of a, a sort of attractive to me. And I'm the same way. Like I'm flying for work tomorrow and, you know, going to New Zealand for work this fall. 
And, but I have had, I do, I will say that his work and his voice has really made me start thinking more intentionally about that. And like, and actually I've committed to my partner recently, like I'm not going to fly unless it's for work in the foreseeable future. Not just because I want to cut my carbon footprint, because that is like a big part of it, but also because I want to be connected to our life and our community. And I think so much of my adulthood has been very kind of fast paced and driven and always on to the next thing that I forget to like kind of witness the everyday miracles and like the the slow kind of beauty in life. And um, it's this very odd way that he and his story, you know, kind of kind of really highlighted the beauty of that of that slowness and those everyday miracles. And at the same time, he's still a very effective climate scientist and he's still able to write books and speak to these issues and go on podcasts. So I'm with you. I'm not going to commit to stopping to fly tomorrow, but I also am very mesmerized by his story. And it is like kind of holding me accountable to be more intentional about that part of my life. So I'm really excited about sharing it with y'all. It was one of the more meaningful conversations I've ever had. So I can't can't wait for you to hear it. Well, I I have to tell you, I just I want to be honest. Like when I heard that that was the topic of your conversation, I was like, oh no, we're gonna you know everyone is being made to feel guilty about flying and like we just live in the world. It's not an option. Um, but honestly, the uh, angle of it of just slowing down and being more present as as a main something that's like. Uh, intrinsically connected to thinking about our lifestyle choices is actually more interesting to me in some ways than the carbon footprint part of it. Um, Because I can, part of me can be a a tiny bit cynical about that of like, oh, sure, I don't get on that airplane, but that airplane's still going to fly. Like, what difference did that make, you know? And so there can be part of me that is a little more cynical about it. Um, So I'm actually glad that your conversation took a more spiritual turn because I do think a lot about uh, just the quality of our lives racing around these days. My new favorite song is Casey Musgraves slow burn where she kind of, it's kind of the, it's kind of the, uh, the theme of the song is just sort of like just being okay with, uh, enjoying a little bit of a slower speed of things. So, okay. You've convinced me, Anna Jane, I will, uh, (laughs) suspend my cynicism and, and go there with you on flying. I've, you've convinced me. I have a great love affair with flying. So if anyone can be convinced to do it less, I think it's me. Um, but he he was convincing and in a very non-shaming way, you know, in a way that really was about quality of life and taking care of each other. And um, yeah, it was it was very compelling to me. So I can't wait to hear what you and all of our listeners think about it. So let's let's get to it right after this. Hi, I'm Taylor and I'm from Savannah, Georgia. Here's your dinner party climate fact for the day. A round trip flight from New York to San Francisco emits roughly 0.9 metric tons of carbon dioxide per person. For an American, that represents about 1 18th of your carbon emission for the year. To put another way, taking one round trip flight between New York and California, you've generated about 20% of your greenhouse gases that your car emits over an entire year. Kinda gross. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. 
You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. So I'm so excited. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Kalmus in atmospheric science at NASA, who is speaking on his own behalf, not on behalf of NASA, but he just wrote an awesome book called Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. And before we jump in, um, Marianne says hi. She was sad that she couldn't make it today. So it's just going to be the two of us. But she's really excited to hear our conversation. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. First, I'm curious, what is it like to work at NASA? Is it as glamorous as the movies make it out to be? Um, it's, a, you know, I saw The Martian and they had, like, uh, they, they actually had the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is where I work uh, in, in The Martian. And it was all like kind of fancied up in the movie. <laughs> like it had fancy, <laughs> fancy turnstiles and the entrance and stuff like that. So it's, it's a wonderful place to work. I love working there. It's, um, it's a huge privilege. Uh, when I was a little boy, I was really into, um, space. You know, um, I remember getting a special issue of, uh, Scientific American. My dad had a subscription when I was growing up and it, you know, it had pictures from Mars and it talked about solar system exploration. And I never dreamt that I would actually be working at the place that designed and flew all of those interplanetary missions. So it's just, um, you know, I, my, my work is not in interplanetary uh, science um, or, or you know, planetary, as they say, at JPL. Um, it's in Earth science now, but it's, you know, just just by proxy being there, the excitement is um, is fantastic. I love it. Um, so just to give you a little bit of context, this is our, um, we're doing a series called How Then Shall We Live, where we've been kind of exploring personal choices in climate change. We did one on having kids or not. <laughs> we did one on food that was fascinating. And we yeah. did the most recent one on energy and cars. And so I'm really excited because I think you have such a, such an interesting perspective on the kind of personal benefits of decreasing your climate footprint. And the reason we kind of started the series is Marianne and I err towards, you know, to really tackle climate change on the scale that we need, it's going to take systematic change. So mm -hmm. guilting or shaming people over their personal choices or what they eat or what they drive, is it helpful and can oftentimes turn people off? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like one of the things that we can do and collectively it does add up. So we just wanted to kind of dive in and have a more nuanced conversation about it. Yeah. The one issue we haven't talked about yet is flying. And you just, I, I've been following your conversations around flying on Twitter. You've written some great articles on it. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious how can, if you could share kind of where your journey on, on the issue of flying. I think there's a, there's, everyone has a different level of concern about climate change. Mine is um, like completely and totally alarmed. <laughs> I try to take back the word alarmed because it's, it's a, you know, as a human and as a father, I am, you know, quite truthfully, I'm alarmed. I, I think this, the data, you know, there's there's literally tens of thousands of independent lines of evidence for climate change. You can't really be um, an earth scientist anymore without seeing the climate change signal. You know, whether you look at ecosystems or the ocean or the atmosphere or ice sheets, um, 
you know, maybe if you're, you're studying earthquakes and, and the deep interior of the earth, you don't see a climate sig signal yet. I'm not sure, but everywhere else, it's just, it's a huge signal and it's rearranging so many different parts of the earth system uh, in ways that ultimately won't be good for humans or non-humans on balance. Um, so I'm, and, and, and the changes are effectively permanent, you know, unlike uh, air pollution is a terrible thing. But once we stop emitting that pollution, uh, the problem goes away. That's not true of climate change. It's it's a long-lasting, effectively uh, on the timescales of human civilization, it's effectively permanent. And you know, as a, as a you said that you were talking about, you know, whether or not to have kids these days. I've got two young sons, and you know, I think about their futures, and uh, and I, I am very alarmed. That said, I, I advocate really firm action at all scales. There's this kind of like sort of false debate about whether we should be pushing individual action or collective action. Um, I think we should be pushing both. And I think that they're, they're intimately tied together. I, it's not clear to me that you can have widespread um, effective collective action without some sort of action at individual scales, municipal scales, regional scales. In other words, we're like this huge flock of fish, these, you know, 7.6 billion humans and, you know, different regions, different countries move in different ways. But ultimately, there's there's this sort of human culture which determines what direction we take as a species. And, um, you know, I'm not really a theorist on how that cultural change works, but it just seems a little bit false for people to be, you know, activists, for example, to be saying, we need large-scale systematic change, and they're not even willing to take the first step of change in their own life. Um, if they're not willing to do that, it's just not clear, you know, and, and a university is not willing to change, a professional organization, a corporation. If, if, if everyone's like, you know, we need systematic change, but we're not willing to take that step ourselves, it's just not clear to me where that systematic change is going to come from. And then, of course, there's this other question, you know, as an individual mammal living in this biosphere, what can I do? Um, in terms of this overwhelming global problem. Well, if I say it's it's up to everyone else and my changes don't matter, that's really disempowering. And I think that's the path to sort of climate anxiety and possibly climate depression. And the way that I stay mentally healthy is by doing everything I can. Um, and that means, you know, talking on podcasts, writing a book, writing articles, but, but even more so just making changes in my own life because I don't like burning fossil fuels for those of us who are truly alarmed about what's happening right now, it'll just make you feel better. Yeah. So that's, that's that. kind of my wide, wide ranging <laughs> overview. No, no, that was fascinating. And kind of along these lines, I found this quote in one of the articles you wrote in Yes Magazine um, that mm. I'd love to share and talk about. But you said, I stopped taking food, water, air, fuel, electricity, clothing, community, and biodiversity for granted. I became grateful for every moment and more aware of how my thoughts and actions in this moment connect to the other moments and to other beings. I began to experience that everyday things are miracles. An avocado, a frame of honeycomb crowded with bees, a conversation with my son. Now I feel connected to the world around me, and I see that fossil fuels actually stood in the way of realizing those connections. Um, I, I would love to hear more about that, like what what sparked this journey towards like really owning your individual actions and how you actually saw that it made your life better to decrease climate or your carbon footprint. Yeah, so, so this was one of the main things that, kind of spurred me to write the book was that um, 
you know, it was around 2010. I was freaking out about climate change. Um, at that time, I was still doing astrophysics, but I was learning more and more about uh, these changes in the Earth system and, and getting kind of more freaked out and telling people that I was getting freaked out and feeling disconnected because, like, I'm like, man, like, this is, uh, this is kind of civilization changing, possibly civilization ending information, and no one seems to care. It was, uh, it was uh, just a, uh, you know, I think maybe a lot of listeners have, have been there, this feeling oh. of like, why isn't anyone doing anything? Why, why isn't anyone, how can there be presidential debates that don't even mention this? You know, it was just surreal to me. Eventually I realized I used to ride a motorcycle, uh, six miles each way from my house to Caltech. And I'm like, you know what? I just don't like burning this stuff anymore. I know what it's doing. That was kind of the, the kind of emerging awareness. Hmm. And so I, so then I was like, well, you know what? It's six miles. Um, I'm getting maybe I could stand to lose five pounds or so. Why don't I try riding my bike? And and so I did. So it felt really good in a lot of ways. And it made me wonder, what else can I change? So I um, lo- I took a look. I kind of did a carbon audit. Um, and I figured out how much CO2 was coming out of um, and, and other greenhouse gases were coming out of you know, my food, uh, my natural gas use, my electricity use, flying, driving, um, you know, throwing stuff into the landfill and buying new stuff. So I'm like, you know, how much does all of this contribute to my footprint? I, I didn't know. Um, I was thinking, you know, I have to put solar panels on my roof. And then I did this. I took a couple, just like a couple of hours at the first estimate. I'm um, just like kind of Googling around, you know, the carbon intensity of these various things. I'm like, man, like electricity for me is almost, almost zero. Um, but flying is like three quarters of my footprint. Um, and food is like the next biggest thing for me. And this will be different for everyone. Um, you know, the, the, the U.S., the, the average U.S. person, um, their main source of, of emission actually comes from driving. Um, for me, it was flying because I was, you know, as a scientist, I was flying to lots of conferences. Um, so, so that kind of like guided me towards like what I could change that would have the most impact. And so I started changing things like food. I became vegetarian and it was sort of like biking. I liked it better. So over the course of three years, I, I went from burning about the U.S average to about a tenth of that. So I reduced my emissions by about a factor of 10. Um, and yes, for, for me, a big part of that change was to reduce my flying and eventually uh, stop flying. And um, my last flight was in 2012, right before I switched to earth science. Uh, you know, and I, I certainly haven't made a promise never to fly again, but I haven't, there's, there's never been a compelling reason that even came close to making me want to get on a plane since mm-hmm. 2012. That's so fascinating. It's funny, you know, like I've been a vegetarian longer than I haven't been since I was 16. Mm-hmm. I've, we, we don't have kids. If we do, we'll only have one. We're very on the fence about that because mm-hmm. I'm mostly because I am so alarmed <laughs> that I'm yeah. nervous about the idea of bringing kids into this world. Yeah, I feel, I feel that too. Yeah, like, yeah, it's a real thing. Um, but yeah, I just, like, I just bought my first car ever and it's like a year older than I am and I drive it like once a once a week, maybe. So I feel like I'm good on like most areas of individual impact, or I'm although I could definitely do better. But flying is really hard for me because I have a very like emotional and historical connection to it. Like literally, when I was born, my parents owned an airport. And some of my first memories were like sitting in a playpen in the lobby and the pilots coming in and like playing with me and 
um, like, I don't know, like that feeling of my dad has a plane, he's a pilot. And I just love that feeling of like taking off on a gray day and then getting above the clouds and seeing this like, whole new world above you. And yeah. I also think that there's like a little bit of, you know, kind of ego attached to it. You know, like I started flying with my dad, who's like a public speaker, and we were always going to conferences or doing important things. Like, and even now it's like, usually if I'm flying, it's because it's work or it's vacation. And there's a sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm an important person that people would fly mm-hmm. me here to do this. And I think that's real, but also it's, it's, it's just, very real. Yeah, yeah. Like it's also just really familiar. Like I wrote an essay in high school about how I felt more at home in airports than I did at home. Cause we traveled so much, but we also moved a lot. And I have, I wanted to be a pilot when I was little. That's what I dreamed of being. So for me, it's like, one, I love doing it. I love traveling. I love the whole experience. But, and also like my work does often take me places that I can't get to easily from rural Alabama. Um, But I know I am a hundred percent that if I mapped out my carbon footprint, that would be the biggest chunk for me. And I don't know. I'm starting to really wrestle with it, partially because of the conversations that I've been seeing you have on on Twitter and and this kind of vanguard conversation you mentioned. Yeah, well, there's so much there that resonates with me. I I would urge you to actually, you know, sit down and map out your carbon footprint. It it won't take you long, especially if you um, sort of follow the recipe that's in my book. It should make it a little bit easier. Full disclosure, I'm actually a licensed pilot. Um, My rating is for gliders, so I, I never flew planes that had motors, actually. I only flew planes that didn't have motors, um, which maybe is kind of of a piece with who I am now in some sense. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't done it in many years uh, for, for a number of reasons, um, just time and staying current. You know, it's dangerous to only fly once in a while. Um, and then also, you know, there's carbon emissions from getting towed. Usually you get towed up behind a Cessna and then you release and then you can you can stay soaring in the clouds for hours and hours oh my gosh. Um, without without a, without a motor because there's air going up and there's air going down, you know. So this also speaks to kind of my fascination with uh, the atmosphere. Um, so it sort of makes it makes sense. I actually kind of remember when I was an undergraduate, I was studying physics, and uh, this was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I, I looked up at the clouds one day, and I, I thought, hmm, I should maybe study the clouds. I'm sort of you know fascinated by them. Uh, at that point, I was already a glider pilot. Um, and I'm like, you know what, I, I just really want to keep doing astrophysics. So I put that on hold, but anyway, I, I love, I love flying, um, so much. Uh, we used to go to the air and space museum, uh, when I was a kid, uh, uh every spring for spring break, we go visit, um, you know, grandma and grandpa in Virginia. And, and I would always make somebody take me to the, the national air and space museum. And they had this film. It was like a, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. It was called to fly. And it was, um, it was sort of cheesy. Uh, it started out with this guy who, um, gets into a balloon. He's got like this, you know, big handlebar mustache and everything. And, uh, it was a, a early IMAX thing, you know, and he goes over this, like, you know, the, this waterfall. Um, I think it was actually Niagara Falls. And, uh, you know, you get this feeling in your stomach when you just kind of suddenly the earth drops away from you. Right. So I was, I was hooked. Um, and it kind of, and then, then it kind of explores the history of flight, you know, up, up through the space program. So, so I get that. I, I love flight. It's just the emissions that I don't like. I love travel too. There are ways to travel without flying. Um, it's a lot slower. Um, that tends to make it more adventurous, which can be a good thing if you can make the time for it and you're, you know, you're willing to embrace adventure. 
you know, so this can involve um, camping. Uh, for me, it's involved driving on veggie oil and dealing with uh, issues with the, this really old car. Um, it's also involved, you know, riding a thousand miles on a bicycle, uh, riding on a container ship um, from Los Angeles to Hawaii, which was wow. definitely, that was quite an adventure. So that was part of my, that was part of research, but um, it was an amazing way to be with the ocean. You know, the planet's three quarters ocean and, you know, seldom do we leave land. You know, when we do, it's usually just in a plane flying over the ocean. Uh, but it's amazing to just spend, you know, spend time with the planet that way and get to know it as an ocean planet. Um, I sailed from uh, Bermuda to New York one time, which I think took about five days uh, crossing the Gulf Stream. That was amazing. So, so if there's a will uh, and there's an, a, w- a willingness to embrace adventure, there's there are ways to do travel without planes. Um, that to me are, are quite thrilling. Mm. Uh, what what we don't have right now is a sort of social acceptance of that. Um, no one's willing to, you know, employers, family members aren't willing to uh, to accept that 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 extra time, that slowness. Um, which which to me is kind of a, a gift. Um, I do think that you know, going to an airport, feeling frustrated by the maybe the lack of food or the lack of legroom. This is all about, you know, not, not feeling that gratitude, you know, not recognizing flight as the miracle that it really is. But yeah, like, I love the way that you explain this. And I know Eric Holthouse also has talked about how giving up flying felt made him feel like much more connected to the world. And it actually was something beautiful. And you get to know your community and your region better, because that's where you spend the most time. And and that is like an appealing thing to me. Like I've traveled mm-hmm. all over the world. We kind of joke between me and my husband that I'm really good at like the big adventure stuff, like the the kind of amazing epic moments in life. And he is, but I'm not very good at like everyday life, <laughs> like like really finding the beauty and the miracles within it. Whereas he's the opposite. Like he is just so good at making everyday life this beautiful thing and being grateful for it and experiencing it. And I'm kind of one of those people who's always looking for the next thing. Um, right. You just put your you put your finger on it right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I think this past year, I actually had partially, honestly, because of some of the conversations I was uh, following, you know, through through your book and the Twitter conversations happening. I was like, you know what, I'm I'm not going to fly unless it's for work. I'm not going to do any like volunteer travel. I'm going to try to really stay put in in our little beach bungalow in rural Alabama and get to know this place and the people here. And it's been, it has been a gift. I definitely haven't cut it out completely, but I feel like my orientation is starting to shift to that slower, more intimate kind of way of connecting with the world. And when I think about like our greatest times have often been camping or, you know, like it hasn't been like, you know, the Mexico Island adventures. It's been like, you know, like the the stuff that's a little bit closer by is oftentimes what we enjoy doing in practice. So I yeah I was really inspired by by your your leadership on this subject. Well, well, the the fact is that everyday life is just you know full of miracles, and I know that's that's a loaded word, you know. And I I don't I don't practice any organized religion, but I do have a meditation practice, um, you know, which which I sort of see as as kind of like a workout for my brain. Frankly, when we're stressed and when we're not you know happy and when we're not sort of in tune with these miracles, it's very hard to connect 
with other people in, in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah, that, um, it really resonated what you were saying earlier in the program about how like if you don't feel empowered to make choices that are better for the planet and for you, you could it can lead to a lot of anxiety or even depression. Like I definitely experienced that some over the past couple of years, you know, it was, it was just like, I had become sort of like a shadow of my former self. And I, and I forgot the whole reason that I got into mm -hmm. like climate activism in the first place is because I love this planet and I love this experience of life. And I think we should try to protect it. And so I've kind of been on That's this right. like journey over the past couple, you know, really year of like getting back to that that place of coming from it with love and gratitude versus fear and anxiety. Oh, that's such an important point. Maybe, you know, that could be like the, like the kind of missing link in uh, climate activism or environmental activism. Maybe uh, it kind of got fell into this trap of, of fear and guilt. Um, and everyone was like, uh, they would face this the activists would face this and they'd feel stressed out. And then they would make, they, they were trying to get other people to follow them, but nobody wanted to go into that place you know, and yes. this is reflected in, in this, this really weird movement of like, you know, going to Mars, right? It's such a, that's such a expression of ingratitude for this planet. Yeah. It, like they can't, people can't even, like, they're not, they're not even aware that they're breathing this amazing air, right? Mm. Um, and, to, you know, to, we, we have to recognize that, you know, our earth is, is essentially sick right now. Um, the biosphere is in a state of decline, uh, and it's not clear how far that process is going to go. Um, but, but even if it, you know, even in this world with, you know, somewhat reduced biodiversity, uh, and even if there are regions in the tropics where humans won't be able to, uh, to live, it's still going to be an amazing planet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's really important to realize that and to, and to feel this gratitude and to feel this love to recognize that there will be humans. Many generations from now, uh, they might be living, you know, a little bit further north. Um, there might not be as many of us and there might not be like quite the, the diversity of, 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 uh, of species that we have now, but it's still going to be a miraculous mm. place. I love um, that. There's, yeah, there's still going to be people sitting down for meals together, you know, enjoying each other's company, uh, taking walks in the forest. At, at least that's my vision. You know, I, I don't think that. I, I don't think that we're going to destroy the planet. Um, I think that we might not have 7.6 billion people and we might not have space programs, mm. at least for a while, until until we kind of um, get our act together as a species. We probably um, won't have rural Alabama on the Gulf Coast, unfortunately. It's <laughs> one of the reasons I moved down they're, they're, here is I wanted to be. I was like, if I'm one of the last generations of humans who get to experience the magic of this place, then I want to... They're still going to be coastal. They That's might be in a slightly different true. place, but they're still going to be, there, there will still be amazing and, and beautiful coasts. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I'm very much about, you know, I'm, I'm not kind of binaristic about, um, you know, people's tell me like, is it, they, I get this question a lot. Is it too late? You know, no, it's not too late. Um, climate change is already here. <laughs> so in, in terms of avoiding climate change, it's too late, but we still are in control of, of how bad it gets. Mm. Um, and you know, we're losing the coral reefs and that's a huge source of grief for me. Yeah. We're losing a lot of stuff and it's, it's a huge source of grief. Um, to me, what we're doing to this planet was unnecessary. It came from, you know, this culture of, of profit and convenience, convenience. 
uh, sort sort of mindlessness. I think it's really connected to the way that we erased indigenous peoples, um, mm. you know, physically in terms of wiping them out and then erasing their culture. Um, this whole time they've been desperately kind of waving their hands in the, in the back of the room saying, Hey, you know, we kind of have this knowledge. We, we know how to live on this planet. Um, so it's, it's been completely unnecessary what, what we've done. And to me, that's a, that's a huge source of grief. Um, but it's not an all or nothing thing. You know, um, if we can keep it below two degrees Celsius of global warming, which is seeming increasingly unlikely to me, uh, that would be better than three degrees. If we keep it to three degrees, that'll be better than four degrees. So, um, you know, how bad it gets is to, to my path now completely immaterial. I'm doing like everything I can. Um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't, I can't control other people's decisions. I can't control the decisions of who people decide to elect, who's in office. I can only control my own life and try to have an effect on the people around me. Mm. Um, well, thank you and, so much for yeah. having a giant effect on so many people, myself included. And um, I could sit here and talk to you all day, but we should probably wrap up. And I just want to say thank you. This is was a deeply inspiring and meaningful conversation for me personally, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners and Marianne. Thanks. Thanks. It was a, that was a fun conversation. It was awesome. All right, that just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. And thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by podcast sage Zach Mack, who lives in L.A., so he will be cranking the A.C. this summer, but he promises to make up for it in other areas of his carbon footprint. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us get the word out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we are going to be posting our updates and episodes and information about what's coming next on our Twitter page, which is at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home.